Well, we're going to try to do this really good and right the first time. Are you ready? All right. Good morning. Oh, I love it. So good. So good. We are so glad that everybody's here today. We know we have several that are sick and out, but we are so thrilled that you're with us this morning. And last week, we began kind of a new journey for a short period, three-week journey of going through Matthew chapter 26 is where we've been. And we've talked about this idea of the verdict. And kind of where we started was this idea that Jesus up to this point, from Matthew about chapter 3 or 4, all the way up to chapter 25, Jesus has been teaching, he's been doing miracles, he's done a lot of these amazing things, and all of it has led to a climactic moment where it's time for people that have been around Jesus to decide, who do I say that Jesus is? After I've seen all the miracles... After I've heard all the teachings of Jesus, what is the verdict that I personally am going to come to about the person and the work of Jesus? And so last week we began that journey and we looked at kind of three different kind of verdicts that were come to. We started with the religious leaders and the religious leaders came to a very clear verdict and it was this, is that Jesus is a threat and he's someone that has to be dealt with. And I ask you at the very end of the message, do you feel like maybe Jesus is a threat to you? Now, some of you immediately were going to go, no, 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 he's not a threat to me because I love him. That's not what I mean. I don't mean a threat in regard that they thought, like he was going to come in and manually, you know, overtake them. I mean a threat in the sense of pretty much all of us in the room like to control our own lives, don't we? But here's the truth. If you've ever said yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, your life is not your own anymore. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. And so he wants sole authority, sole control of your life. And most of you, if you're like Doug, I like being in the driver's seat of my own life. How about you? I like being in control. But so much of my life and my faith is to say, Lord, it's not me in control, but there's only room for one on the throne of my life, and it has to be you. And if you wrestle with that, then you're kind of like the religious leader, like I am, who sees Jesus sometimes as a threat. And then we saw Judas at the very end, and Judas saw Jesus. His verdict was that Jesus was someone who was okay to betray. Now, if I ask you, do you feel like you betrayed Jesus immediately, your answer is going to be, no, I'm not. But here's what I mean by that. I mean, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you claim to be devoted to him, yet your life reflects everything but that, is that any different than what Judas had done? See, when we looked at it last week, man, it got real, it got real for a little bit. Because we're like, I'm not a religious leader, I'm not like Judas. And at the end of the conversation, we realize I'm more like them than I want to be. Because he is a threat sometimes. He likes authority in my life. I don't like to do that. I like my control. Or, you know, I, I didn't outwardly betray him. I didn't deny him like Peter, but yet the way I live my life, isn't it like I'm denying him? Isn't it like I'm betraying him like Judas? And then we had this amazing woman take this very expensive perfume, and she broke it, and she poured it on Jesus. This perfume was probably, a, it was at least a year's worth of wages. Can you imagine that? First of all, man, can you imagine buying your wife a year's worth of wages of perfume, right? That's unheard of. And she took it, and she broke it, and she poured it on Jesus. Why? Because her ver verdict was this, is that Jesus is worth everything. Everything I am, everything I have, belongs to him. And we left last week with this question, which one are you, and which one do you want to be? Now, today, I love today. Today's one of my favorite passages, and if you notice, it's different today. So if you're, if you're first time here, I don't usually have all this stuff up here. It's not like, you know, I'm just going to you know, get really thirsty as I go through the message. It's not that at all, right? So today's very, very different, but I want to say this. As we come to the chapter 26, the passage we're going to read today, 
It's a passage where Jesus lays out the verdict he wants us to come to. The culmination of everything he's taught, the culmination of everything he's done is coming to a head right here in the upper room with the disciples in this final moment. And he's like, here's the verdict I want you to come to about me. And this verdict not only changes your life, it will change all of eternity for you. And I want you to come to this verdict. So what is that verdict? If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to ask you, I know you just sit down, but that's okay. We need some aerobic exercise. If you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word, and I'm going to read this passage, and then we're just going to walk through it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 says this. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you want us to prepare to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will, uh, I, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as, as, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? He answered, he is the one who's dipped his hand in the dish with me, who will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written to him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It will be better for him, the man, if he had not been born. Judas, who had betrayed him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I will drink new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. God, I love you. I thank you for today. I know as we come to this passage, Lord, we're going to learn some really new things today. But I pray that you would help us see the insights and the significance of what Jesus does in this final supper that drastically should not only change our lives, but change our eternities. And today, may we celebrate it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this moment. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we go through this, I want to kind of back up. And I know you've got a listening guide. I'm going to tell you, you don't need that till the end, because those notes are for the very end of the message. But I want to walk you through some things. I want, to, I want to take you back that night because to me, this is the night that changes everything. This is the night when Jesus was with the disciples. In fact, if you look at John's gospel, this night includes like four chapters. John just lays it out in a beautiful, beautiful way. But this night changes everything. And I want to start with verse 17. Let's go back to verse 17, what it says. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will we have us prepare to eat the Passover? Now, this Passover is what I'll talk about for a minute. Because in Jewish culture, once a year, they would celebrate what was known as the Passover. Now, many of you already know what the Passover is. You've been in church all your life, and you could tell probably better than I can tell. But there may be somebody here who doesn't know what the Passover is. So I want you to understand it, because it is the foundation to the supper. Way back in the Old Testament, not in Genesis, but in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, there was a group of people, they were known as the Hebrew people. Later, they became a nation known as Israel, and then later they became known as the Jewish people. It's all the same descendants. It's all the same people, all right? So even though we use different names, it's all the same grouping. It's the same journey. It's the same lineage, all right? And so way back then in in the book of Exodus, 
God's people, the Hebrew people, were in bondage and in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Now think about that for a minute. Generation after generation after generation after generation, all they knew was slavery, right? And then there came a moment in Exodus chapter 3 where God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people, meaning my people have been in slavery so long that eventually they got so fed up that my people just started crying out to me. And Moses, I've heard the cries of my people and we're going to do something about it. I'm raising you, Moses, up to go deliver my people. Now, we don't have time to talk about that story because that's a beautiful story in and of itself because Moses was really good at giving God a lot of great excuses as to why he could not do the very thing God had called him and equipped him to do. Sounds a lot like many of us, doesn't it, right? And so in this moment, Israel crawls out to God. We need you. And God raises up Moses, and Moses goes to Egypt, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, you know, that, that Charlton Heston moment, you know, let my people go, right? You remember that in the Charles? And he says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh gives a great answer. No, right? We're not going to do it. These people are my slaves. These people have been oppressed for so long. They are building our buildings. We, we have nothing without the Israelites that we have oppressed and that are our slaves. And so he tells Moses, no, they're staying here. And so then God raises the ante a little bit. God sends 10 plagues to Egypt. And each one are terrible. And after each plague, Moses goes back to Pharaoh and goes, okay, now you've experienced that. Let my people go. And time after time after time, Pharaoh says what? No. But then there was the 10th plague. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn son in any house. And God told all the Hebrew people, here's what I want you to do. I'm about to send a 10th plague, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be brutal. And I want you to go, and I want you to grab some bitter herbs. And I want you to grab some fruit, and we're going to mix it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And you're going to mix it, and then I, w- I want you to go find a lamb, a spotless lamb. And then I want you to go, and I want you to slaughter that lamb. And I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to put it on the doorpost and the top of your doorways. And then I want you to take that lamb, and I want you to roast it. And I want you to take it inside, and I want you to eat every bit of it. And what you don't eat tonight, I want you to burn in the morning, because I'm about to deliver you, and I want you to be ready. And here's the point. He said, I want you to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the door. And here's what's going to happen in this 10th plague. I'm going to send my death angel. And if you have the blood over the door and on the doorpost of your house, the death angel will what? Pass over. That's where they get the Passover. And if you read the story in Exodus, what you find out is that's exactly what happened. God passed over the homes of those that did exactly what God said, and God took the lives of the firstborn sons of those who did not, and Pharaoh lost his own, and Pharaoh said yes, and then Israel exited Egypt. Now, we don't have time to tell the whole story, but the point is this. God said, listen, I want you to do this, and if you do it, my death angel will pass over you. This was such a celebration because now they went from slavery to freedom. And so they would mark it every year, and every year the Jewish people would come together and they would celebrate this feast of Passover. So when it says it comes the first day of the unleavened bread, and they asked Jesus, where do you want us to take the Passover? This wasn't like a birthday party. This was like the event in all of Jewish history. It was one of the three events that was the biggest of all. I mean, only the Day of Atonement was the, uh, and another big one. I mean, this was the big one of the big. This reminded us what God had done for us. So Jesus, how do you want us to do this thing? this Passover celebration. And then Jesus gives them some instructions next. Look with me in verse 18 and 19. He tells them this. He said, go into the city, 
to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did just as Jesus directed them, and they went and prepared the Passover. So after they come to Jesus and the, you know, they, they say, we're going to get ready for this Passover, Jesus gives them instructions. He says, I want you to go make sure and prepare the Passover. So when I show up, we can take this meal. Now let me remind you, this meal is a reminder of how God had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians and rescued them. Are you with me on that? Say, I'm with you. Are you with me on that? Say, I'm with you. I mean, because this is good stuff, and it translates to our life. And what we're going to find out today as we go through this is this. Everything has significance. And I know it's going to feel a little academic a little bit today, but I want you to stay with me because the power of what Jesus is going to do is radical here in just a minute. Because what Jesus does is he doesn't only observe a Seder or a Seder, if you've heard of a Seder service, a Seder just means an order. It, it, Jesus not only just observes a Passover service, he makes some shifts in the Passover service that would have new implications for you and I here today. And it's so important we understand this. So he said, listen, I want you to go in. I want you to make preparation. Now, what does it mean for them to make preparation? Well, there were three things the disciples had to make sure was ready. Number one, they had to go in and make sure the house was clean. Now, you're going to love this one, all right? So the Passover was taken on the 14th day of the month, which was a spring month. And on the 13th day, what would happen is all the matriarchs of the home, the, 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 the wives, the mothers of the house, they would have to do something. And, and, you know, don't throw anything at me. This is the way it was. They had to clean the house. And the husbands could not be a part of that. And all the men said what? Amen. Amen. That's right, right? And so, and so they had to clean the house. And they had to clean it from top to bottom. There could be nothing in there. The only thing the wife could do, and this is awesome, the only thing the wife could do, they had to get rid of everything in the house that was dirty. In fact, they had to get rid of all the yeast that was in the house. Now, what does yeast do to bread? It makes it rise. Exactly. So they had to clean all the yeast out of the house, all the leaven out of the house, and all they were to do after they cleaned the whole thing is they were to take a little bit of yeast, and they were going to play hide-and-seek with their husband, and they were going to hide that yeast somewhere in the house and not tell their husband where. And then on the 14th day of that month, the husband had to come in. You're going to love this wise. He had to come in and inspect the work of the matriarch. If she did a good enough job cleaning the house, men, don't say anything about this. All right, just keep working with me, okay? They had to come in and inspect it. But here was their main job. Knowing to inspect the house, they had to find the yeast. And so they would search and they would search and they would search. And eventually they would find the yeast and they would take a feather. I should have brought this with me. They would take a feather, and they would take a wooden spoon, and they would have swept the yeast into a wooden spoon. They would have covered it with a linen cloth, and then they would have gone back to the temple and would have thrown it into the fire. Now, why did they do that? Because they were saying, okay, my house now is completely clean, and we are ready for the Passover. So when the disciples went there, they had to make sure the preparation, the cleansing preparation had been done first. Secondly, they had to make sure all the elements were there. They had to make sure the bitter herbs were there. They had to make sure the harasat was there, which was a, was a, which was a sweet mixture of nuts and, and pears and, and different things. They had to make sure all the elements were there. And then the third thing they had to do in preparation was make sure there was a lamb there, a lamb that was spotless, and a lamb that had been taken to the temple and was slaughtered between 3 and 5 o'clock, which was called twilight. And they would have to make sure the lamb was slaughtered. And the blood of the lamb was not going to be put on the doorpost anymore. No, it was going to be put on the altar because it was a picture of our sacrifice to God. As they put the blood on the doorpost in Egypt, when they there were saying, God, we sacrifice ourselves to you. We're going to do whatever you tell us to do. We are yours. We belong to you, whatever you say. But now it's not about a doorpost. Now they're putting that blood on the altar before God. And then they would have that lamb and they would roast it. 
And so once the house is clean, once all the bitter herbs and all the sweet things were there, all the elements were there, and once the lamb had been slaughtered and the blood had been put on the altar and the lamb is roasted, now they're ready to take the Passover meal. And that's where we pick up the rest of the story. Look at me in verse 20 and says this. When evening had come, Jesus, he, Jesus, reclined at the table with the 12, and as they were eating. Now, I want to stop there just for a moment. A couple of things I want you to notice here. First of all, how was Jesus, what was his posture at the table? What does it say? He's reclined. Now, anybody ever seen, is it, is it Leonardo da Vinci's painting? You've seen the painting, right? The Last Supper, right? Anybody seen that one? Okay, am I the only one that's seen that one? Everybody got me? Okay, that is not at all what it looked like, by the way, okay? So they have them sitting around a table like you and I would sit around a table. That's not what reclining means. Actually, reclining means they were laying alongside the table, like laying on a hip and with an arm down, right? So that's what they were doing. Now, why was reclining such a big deal? Well, because if you go all the way back to Egypt, God told them when the Passover comes, I want your tunic, your coat. I want it tucked in. I want a staff in hand, and I want you to be ready. So when I say it's time to go, we get out of here. Because slaves stood, freed people reclined. And what a beautiful picture that these people, Jesus and his disciples, aren't standing and waiting to exit. They are reclining because they are free. What a beautiful picture. But then he says this, and then they began to eat. This is where the meal starts. This is where the Passover meal starts. So I want to take a moment, and I want to walk you through some of the elements and then get to the main point of the message today. So you may have been through a Seder service, and you know more about it than I do, but just I want to hit the high points of it. First of all, as the meal started, Jesus would have taken the cup as the patriarch in the house or the leader in the house. He would have taken the first cup, and he would have blessed it, and then he alone would drink from this cup. And it was kind of the way to signify that the meal has officially began. And then after he'd taken from the cup, then they would do a ceremonial washing. They would have taken a pitcher of water, and they would have washed their hands, and they would have washed what else? Their feet. Now, if you think about it for a moment, all right, let's just think, guys, let's just be guys for a moment, right? Because we carry a stench with us that ladies don't carry, right? If I'm reclining at the table, and I'm laying on my hip with here, guess where my feet are? They're in somebody else's face, right? I mean, so I'm reclining at this table. So it was, it was absolutely, at one part, a hygiene thing. We want to make sure we are clean before we come to the table. But more importantly, it was a reminder of spiritual cleansing. That before you partake and before you celebrate what God has done for you, there needs to be some spiritual cleansing that happens. See, John chapter 13, this is where John says that Jesus got up from the table and put a towel around his waist, and he got on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet at this moment in the service. What a beautiful picture of humility, right? That Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would wash their feet. And so they would have a ceremonial cleansing. And then after the ceremonial cleansing, after the washing of feet, and after the washing of the hands, then they would have what you and I would call an appetizer, all right? They would have an appetizer. And we're going to have a picture up here for you. I think Thomas has got that. This is what a Seder plate that I have looks like and some elements on there. But what they would have done is they would have taken the parsley, and they would dip parsley into salt water, and then they would have eaten it. Now, the salt water itself represented something. It represented tears. I don't know if you've ever, some of you are like me, you're not really a crier, but have you ever had that moment in your life where you cried so hard that tears are streaming down so much that you got a taste of your own tears? Anybody ever been like that? What does tears taste like? Salt water. And so as they began this service, Jesus would bless the cup, they would cleanse themselves, and then they would take this parsley, and they would dip it in the salt water, and then they would eat it, reminding them of the tears they cried out before God. 
Tears that reminded them that what we need in the midst of being slaves, the only one that can deliver us, the intervention that we need can only come from God Almighty. And they cried out to God. And so every time they took the parsley and dipped it into the salt water and ate it, it was a reminder of the desperate cry they made to God to deliver them. Now I want to pause for just a minute. I don't know whether you're going through a great season of life or horrific season of life. But we can still always cry out to the King of kings and Lord of lords that he's exactly what we need. Amen? If you're going through a terrible spot or you're going through a spot of doubt or you're you're going through things great, listen, the reminder of this for us today is that he's always there waiting for us to cry out to him. Because as much as they desperately needed him, guess what? We too desperately need him. Amen? And then after they did that, the next thing they would do is the dad or the matriarch, Jesus, at this table, would have taken the matzo bread. The matzo bread, there would have been three stacked on top of each other. And the matzo bread represented unity. Now, talk about the matzo bread here in a little bit, but right now this just represents unity. Now, for a Jewish person, the unity was in how God had moved through history. For example, God would often show up and talk to people, and he would say, to kind of clarify who he was, he would say, I'm the God, uh, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So that was kind of a picture of unity, However, with the Lord's Supper, this takes on a different dynamic. This is not about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This presents a picture of the unity within the triune God that we serve. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? What would have happened is the dad would have then taken the middle piece, which, by the way, who's the second person in the Trinity? Jesus, the Father, then the son. The dad would have taken the middle piece and he would have taken it and he would have broken the bread like this. And then he would have taken the, the, the one of the pieces and he would have put it right back where it was. And then he would have taken this other piece and he would have taken a piece of linen like I have here. He would have taken this linen piece and he would have covered it up and wrapped it up the best he could. And then he would have had somebody take it and bury it or hide it. I did a terrible job wrapping that. But they would have taken it, and they would have wrapped it, and then he'd had somebody go bury this. I'm going to say I'm burying it over here. And he'd go to bury it, and they would hide it, and they would come back to it later. And then the person in the house, Jesus in this case, would have taken the second cup, and he would have spoke a blessing, and only Jesus would have drank from this cup. He would have blessed it, he would have drank from it, and then he would have told what is called the Haggadah. He would have told the story in Exodus chapter 12, how they were in slavery, but how God raised up Moses and God delivered them. Now, I want you to get this. The whole point at this point in the meal is to remember what God has done for us. Now, I want to say something to you, and I want you to hear me, because this is important to me, all right? In Scripture, Jesus over and over and over again says, remember when? Remember when? When the disciples have just fed 4,000 people, you're like, no, Doug, it was 5,000. No, that's a whole other story. He fed 4,000 people too. After they got done feeding the 4,000 people, they had all this leftover bread, all this leftover stuff, and they get on the boat and they forget it, and the disciples begin to fight over who forgot. They got one loaf on this boat, and they begin to fight over who forgot the bread and who forgot the fish. And Jesus goes, well, wait a minute, guys. Remember when I broke the bread? Remember when I fed the 4,000, in other words, you know, if I can feed 4,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread, surely I can take care of 12 people with one. Because remember what I've done. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life, I become so self-centered that I forget to remember what God has done. Do you, have you ever had a moment where you thought about remembering what God has done for you? Remember the addiction that God got you out of? You didn't get out of that. 
God, no, no, my 12-step program, no, no, no. God intervened. You had people around you that helped you, but God intervened. Or that marriage that was about to fall apart and you were ready to go to the lawyer and you were defiled and yet God rescued that? Well, God intervened. And I think it's important for us as we come to the table to remember that while we don't have the same story necessarily that Egypt have, I've never been a slave to an Egyptian pharaoh. Have you? But at the end of the day, I still have been a slave to something and it's a slave to sin. And the only reason I'm free from sin is because God stepped in. Because God did something that I couldn't do for myself. And it's important for us as we come to the table and in a moment we come to the Lord's table that we are reminded and we remember what has Jesus done for you. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free. You were dead in your trespasses. You were going to spend eternity apart from him in a place called hell. And Jesus set you free. It's important for us to remember that. So then after he hid this, then the dad would take the other pieces of bread. He would take in the top piece, and he would take in the piece that he broke, and he would have lifted it up, and the dad would have given a traditional Jewish blessing, which would have been this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then Jesus would have taken the bread, and he would have broken it, and he would have handed it out to the disciples. Now, this bread is significant because for, in, in, for Israelite, it reminded them that we had to make matzah bread. We had to make bread with no leaven in it because when God moved, he was going to move so quickly. We have to get out quickly. We don't have time for the bread to rise. We're not going to be here that long. And so for a traditional Jewish meal, this represented a quick escape. But this is where Jesus makes his first major shift. Look with me in verse 26. Look what Jesus says. This is the first and the biggest shift that we see up to this point. After blessing it, that traditional blessing I talked about, he broke it and he gave it to disciples and he said this, take, eat, this is what? This is my body. This is my body. In other words, up to this point, we've been celebrating the history of the Jewish faith. We've been celebrating and remembering how they were in Egypt and how they cried out to God and God delivered them, but now that's changed. And so we remember this matzah bread, which was once a picture of quick escape. Now it's not a picture of quick escape. This matzah bread now is a picture of a way of escape, that Jesus was going to sacrifice his own body for the salvation of man. This was a shift. In the Passover. Now, let me tell you the significance of that, because some of you, you've been too churched. You're like, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I've heard that. Listen, this was a moment where it became surreal for the disciples. Jesus had talked about this moment. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man. He had already predicted his death. He already talked about it. But this was a moment in the upper room as they're celebrating a Passover meal, this reminder of the past that Jesus says, oh, by the way, this bread... It's no longer about a quick escape. It's about a way of escape. I'm going to sacrifice my own body so that there may be salvation to mankind. In fact, the Luke gospel says it this way, that no one took Jesus' life, but he laid it down of his own what? Accord. No one took it. He laid it down. And so this moment was no longer about a quick escape. This moment was now about a way of escape. Then after he had broken the bread and after he'd given it to the disciples to eat, then they would actually go and they would eat from the Seder plate. Let's put that picture back up. And the first thing they would do is they would take the romaine lettuce and they would dip it into, at the very top is horseradish. Anybody like horseradish? That's gross. Okay, so they, they would dip it in there. But here's what you know about horseradish. It's bitter. 
right? And they would take this romaine lettuce and they would dip it into the horseradish, reminding them of the bitterness of slavery. I don't know about you. If I was an Israelite and I had just come out of Egypt and the first year we're celebrating this, would you still have a fresh thought about the bitterness of being in slavery? You better believe it. And see, some of you, maybe you're new to the faith. And as we come to the table here in just a few moments and you take of the Lord's Supper, you need to be reminded of the bitterness of the sin that was in your life, that you were a slave to sin, that you were dead in your sins, you were dead in your trespasses. And so they would take this romaine lettuce and they would dip in the horseradish, which is terrible and tastes nasty, and I'm not going to demonstrate, and then they would eat it, reminding them of the bitterness of slavery. Then they would take the matzah bread. And if they were lucky enough to get a piece this big, they would have broken it. And then they would take it and they would have dipped it into the haroset, which is just below the lamb on the right. And look at your neighbor and say, haroset. Look at your neighbor, say it hard. Yeah. And then apologize when you're done, right? Haroset was a mixture of sweet fruits and wine was the paste. And they would take it and they would mix it. And for them, it was a reminder of the mortar they used to have to mix up every day as they worked in Egypt. But now they would take it and they would take the haroset and they would put it between the pieces of matzah that they had and they would eat it, reminding them of the sweetness of God's deliverance in their life. They were reminded of the bitterness of slavery, but they were also reminded of the sweetness of how God had delivered them. And then after that was done, then they would eat the lamb, the shank bone of a lamb which I have a story about this, I can tell you later, but the shank bone of a lamb, then they would take it and it would remind them that now it's the time to eat the lamb. So the lamb that had been roasted, now they would take the lamb and they would divide it and they would begin to eat the lamb. And that was their meal. And at the very end of after eating the lamb, then it began to shift again. Then Jesus, at this time, he would have had a disciple do it, but in modern Jewish times, they actually get kids involved because they want kids not to be bored at a meal like this. Can you imagine how boring it would be for a child? And so they would say, hey, we need to go this, this afikomen that we've hid. We need it to be found, and the kids would make a game of it, and they would go searching high and low to find it, and then inevitably, a kid would come back, and they would bring the afikomen and say, I found it, I found it, and then the patriarch, the dad, in this case, Jesus, would have taken the afikomen, and he would have unfolded it, and he would have raised it up, and he would have talked about it. See, this, this afikomen, as it was brought back, for a Jewish person, would have been a reminder that that which was lost is now found. Now, why was that important for Jewish people? It was important because it was a reminder, if you read anything in the Old Testament, here's the one thing you know. Israel, over and over and over again, rebelled against God, didn't they? And over and over and over again, God forgave them and restored them. And it was a reminder of how God had treated them through the history. But listen, now this takes on a new imagery. Can you think of anything else? The, the bread that represents maybe a body that was sacrificed, that was buried, and later was brought back. Can you think of any story like that one? Maybe the resurrection? See, now this takes on new significance. In fact, there's a guy in the Cross Life Oviedo campus. His name's Alan Schwartzbach, I believe. He grew up as an uh, Orthodox Jew, and then Jesus saved him. So I told him one day, we were joking, I said, if anybody's getting to heaven, it's you, bro. I mean, you're Jewish by, by ethnicity, and you love Jesus. I mean, you're like in and in. I mean, you're the really guy. And so he and I were talking about this, and he said that he still observes the Passover every year. And this now has this beautiful picture of the resurrection of Jesus. When the afikomen is brought back, it's not just a picture of that which is lost is found. It is that, but now for a believer, it's a reminder that that which was dead 
has been brought back to life. And then after they would go through this part of the service, then and the final, really the, one of the final stages, Jesus would have taken the third cup. This third cup was extremely significant. This third cup represented sacrifice, blood sacrifice. Now, when he would take in this cup, Jesus would have blessed it. And as, after he blessed it, they would have reminded themselves of the past of how God had delivered them through blood sacrifice. Remember the blood on the door and the death angel did what? He passed over them. But this cup also reminded them of the deliverer who one day was going to come and deliver them from their sins. And here's where Jesus makes the final shift in the service. Look with me in verse 27 and 28. Here's what Jesus says. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said this, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my body, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, listen, where this cup reminds us of the blood that was once shed, and where this cup reminds us of the deliverer that's once going to come and delivers from sin, here's what I want you to know. I'm that deliverer. And it's my blood that's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm saying that because I want you to know this. Can you imagine being a disciple and having this moment where Jesus already taken the bread, a bread that was all about quick escape, and now it's about the way of escape that he was going to sacrifice his own body? I mean, let's just think, be honest. If you're Peter there, you remember what Peter said. Peter's like, man, hey, I'll die for you. And then later when they come to arrest him, he's ready to cut an ear off, right? I mean, I mean, Peter's like, he's wrestling with all of this stuff. And here he comes to the cup. And he says, this cup reminds you of the blood sacrifice to get you out of Egypt. And it reminds you that one day a deliverer is coming. And here's what I'm declaring today. I am the Lamb of God. I am the blood sacrifice. My blood is going to be shed so that men and women and children, boys and girls, can have faith and have salvation. What a moment this must have been. And then after they got done, they sang what was known as the Hallel which was Psalms 113, and they would sing it as a chorus. Now, you're like, Doug, that's a lot of information. I know it is, but isn't it cool? But here's the best part. You ready? As you go through the Seder service, or you go through a Passover meal, as a Jewish person, here's what you're reminded of. You're reminded of the tears of when you cried out for God because he's the only one that could rescue you. You're reminded of the bitterness of slavery. But you're reminded of the sweetness of how God intervened, but God stepped in and delivered them. But for us, as we look at this, we're reminded that the one that stepped in is Jesus, that Jesus is our sacrifice. His body was beaten, bruised, and sacrificed, and his blood was shed so that we could have the hope of heaven. Jesus says, listen, it's not about bringing a lamb to slaughter anymore. I am the lamb. I will be the one that slaughtered. What a moment. See, Passover has always been a celebration of salvation. Always. Passover was always a celebration of salvation. For the Israelites, it was a celebration of salvation from Egypt. <clears throat> they were enslaved to Egypt, but at the end of the day, God had a plan. I mean, it was all about salvation from Egypt. But for us, it's not about salvation from a nation. It's about salvation from sin. The penalty the punishment, and the price of sin. It's about that salvation. Passover's always been a celebration of salvation. It just shifted in the supper. 
Now, why in the world is all this information important to you? And I want you to write this down. First of all, here it is. Because we are all slaves in need of salvation. All of us. And I'm not trying to offend you by saying you're a slave. What I'm saying is we are born with a sin nature and we choose to sin and it's our nature to sin. And we are in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin. All of us. We are all slaves. We are all slaves in need of salvation. Israel was a slave to Egypt, but God had a plan for them. We are slaves to sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. I mean, if you think about it, the weight of sin is bitter. I mean, to think about that we all sin and that what we all deserve is death, hell, and the grave. I mean, isn't that a little bitter? Leave a little bit of bitterness in your mouth? It should. But God stepped in, right? God demonstrated his love in this, Romans 5, 8 says, that while we were still sinners, help me, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us. I know the most quoted verse in all the scriptures, what? Anybody know? John 3, 16. But it is the sweetest, maybe most powerful verse of all the scripture too. For God so loved us that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know what he means? He says he gave, he didn't just send him to this earth. He sent him to go to a cross for us. All of us, all of us are slaves and need salvation. Secondly, salvation comes at a high price. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's what? No forgiveness of sin. That if we are going to be forgiven before a holy God, there must be bloodshed. Guess what? It wasn't the shedding of blood of a lamb or of an animal. It was the shedding of blood of a Savior, Jesus. His blood was shed for all of us. One more thing I want you to notice. <coughs> it's this, that salvation comes only by receiving that sacrifice. Question, if you were an Israelite in Egypt and you had a lamb and you slaughtered the lamb, but you did not apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost and the death angel come, would he have passed over your house? What was the key? You had to apply it, right? You had to apply it. See, what we've heard today is this. We've heard the beautiful story of the gospel, the beautiful story how Jesus loved us so much that in this Passover meal, he said, my body's going to be sacrificed. My body's going to be bruised. It's going to be beaten. It's going to be sacrificed. And my blood's going to be shed. Why? So that people might experience the forgiveness of their sins. But here's the thing. You can know it all day long, but you've got to apply it to your heart, right? Revelation chapter 3 says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So you can know this stuff all day long, but if you don't apply it, what good is it? So here's my prayer for all of us today, all right? You can put your notes down. Here's my prayer. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, here's the verdict that I hope you come to. I hope you come to this verdict, that you know that you are a sinner, that you have said things thought things, and did things that was rebellion toward God. Maybe it was a foul mouth. Maybe it was a bad decision. Maybe it's the way you treat people. I don't know what it is. But you would admit that you are a sinner. But you also would understand and realize and accept the fact that there's a Jesus who loves me enough that he went to a cross and died for me. And that you would make this verdict, that today you would say, I want him in my life. 
He's knocking at my door. I have this knowledge, and now I want to apply it to my life. I want to receive him as my Lord and my Savior. If you don't know him today, that's the invitation for you. But if you're a believer in the room today, can I tell you what I hope your verdict is? I hope your verdict is to remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember what he's done in your family. Remember what he's done in your finances. But most importantly, remember what he's done in your eternity. You move from death to life, from darkness to light when you trusted him, from hell to heaven. Would you remember that? And secondly, would you celebrate that? Would you celebrate? Here's how we're going to celebrate today. Today, in just a moment, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. We're going to ask you to come. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be a member of this church. That doesn't matter. But if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in your heart, we're going to invite you to come to one of these tables. And if you're not able to move around, you just kind of raise your hand, and Randy's got a, a tray. We'll come to you. If you can't get up and move around, we'll come to you. But we're going to ask you to take that bread, which is a picture of the body of Jesus that was sacrificed, and I want you to dip it into the, to the juice, a picture of the blood that was shed, and then I want you to take that. And that's our way to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you right now, every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what Scripture tells us to do. It says, before we come to the Lord's table and take the supper, we must remember and we must examine our hearts. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, I'm just going to ask you to take a moment of silence there. And would you just remember, would you just examine your hearts?